So if you got your Bible, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 3. I'll be honest with you tonight. We're going to start in the Scriptures. It's going to be an odd, odd night for me because, in a sense, we're not going to spend a ton of time in the Scriptures tonight. It's going to be mainly history tonight, but it's important history. So, um, for the past two weeks, we've been in the history of the church, broadly speaking, uh, just real general. We spent the last two weeks talking about broad stroke church history from two different perspectives. One, the history of the church during times of persecution. That was two weeks ago. Last week, the church during times of prosperity and peace and power. And we saw in a lot of ways that that was counterintuitive in, in what you might think about those, the church during those different times. The church, because the, we saw that the church in large part has grown, it has spread, the church has spread in a lot of ways throughout the nations of the world during times of persecution because persecution has driven it there. Now, I'm not saying that's always the case. We did talk about times when the persecution and the repression and oppression has been so heavy and so constant that in a particular place, it's almost like the church has disappeared. But throughout history, from the days of Acts throughout, in a lot of places, persecution has spread the people of God who took the gospel with them. And the church, in some ways, flourished during times of persecution. It, the persecution has purified the church in many ways and sanctified it and grew it into deeper maturity and a closer dependence on Christ and His presence and His, His favor, longing for His return. On the other hand, the other counterintuitive thing was that during times of prosperity and peace and, and, and yeah, whatever you want to call it, power, while good things did come out of some of those times, very often that prosperity has corrupted the church and caused it to drift away from the gospel and caused the church to drift away from faithfulness to Christ. And so it's a good thing to know that history from both, both angles, especially the latter one on prosperity, so that we can, we can see better to see our own, our own selves today because we live in a, in a very prosperous time. So we don't want to be, uh, we want to swim against the, the grain of expectation throughout her church history. But tonight I want to begin thinking about probably the most pivotal and, and ground-shaking period of church history outside of the time of the apostles in the book of Acts. And I'm talking about the reformation of the church. And you see a part one there. We're going to take two weeks on this thing. If you don't have any idea what the reformation is, I hope by the time we're finished you have some idea of what it is. And... Uh, most visibly, most visibly throughout history, the Reformation is the reason, mainly in the 16th century, that's the reason why there is something other than the Roman Catholic Church. But there is Protestant and Catholic. The, the, the Reformation created the Protestant Church. But it was so much more than that. I don't, it, the reality is the Reformation has affected your life Way more than you may realize. I mean, the fact that we're here doing this right now is owing to the fact of the Reformation. Out, our understanding of prayer, our understanding of the Bible, our understanding of God, of ourselves, of Christ, of salvation, 
of the church, of heaven and hell, of government, of education, of philosophy, of knowledge itself, of justice, of music and art, and on and on and on and on. All of that has been shaped by the Reformation and a German monk. <laughs> it's not, it's not, it really isn't an exaggeration to say that in, in some way, practically every aspect of your life has been influenced by something that happened over 500 years ago. And of course, we're not going to have time tonight to go into how each of these things that I just mentioned specifically have been impacted, but we'll talk about some of it. And I hope that by the time we're finished this weekend next, you'll have a better appreciation and understanding for who were the, some of the reformers and what, what exactly was the reformation that God, that God brought about in the church through them. Let me just show you, before we read this passage, let me just show you just one, one illustration of how massively the Reformation affected the world. Um, we know that in the, in the late 18th century, our country had a revolution, right? American Revolution uh, began officially July 1776 through the signing of a Declaration of Independence from Great Britain. All but one of the 56 signers of the Declaration were Protestant. Okay, so there you go. And their understanding of people and humanity and of the role of government was heavily in, influenced by the Enlightenment, which was heavily influenced by the Reformation. Okay? The very, so that the very first amendment of our Constitution that they crafted established the freedom of religion. That's, and to all of it says, knowing that an individual has to stand before God for himself, and it cannot be coerced by someone outside. That's a very Protestant, that's a very, very Reformation kind of idea. Right? That I am, I, I myself stand before God. That's a very Protestant Reformation idea. Uh, that same year that the, the Constitution went into effect in our country, another revolution was going on in France. The French Revolution. And it began... That, and I'm painting in broad strokes, but the French Revolution began out of deep resentment uh, from the poor against the aristocracy and against abuses of wealth and power. And the extravagancies of the rich, beginning at the top with the king himself, King Henry, the, I mean, King uh, Louis XVI. And the people rose up against uh, the aristocracy and even the king himself. I mean, can you imagine? Even the king died on a guillotine. You know? The king himself. And it was rioting and it was looting and it was absolute bloodbath for almost 10 years. In just a, in just a snapshot, in 1794, in just a 10-month period, 10 months, over 17,000 people were beheaded. 17,000. That's over 400 people a week for 10 months. The reason I'm bringing all this up is because there's long been speculation as to why that kind of revolution didn't also happen in England during that same time period after our 
revolution against them, why did not another re revolution happen in England like the one that happened in France? Because they had much the same kind of situation. They had an aristocracy and poor and, and same kind of deal going on. Well, why? Well, one very plausible explanation or suggestion as to why it didn't also happen in England like it happened in France is John Wesley. John Wesley. John Wesley, who founded the, the Methodist movement, Methodist church, he had for decades, for decades, probably more than 50 years, Prior to that French Revolution, he had been riding on horseback throughout England, preaching the gospel, especially among the poor. And the poor loved him, and the poor uh, came to faith in Christ, and churches were started among the poor all throughout England. It's estimated by the time he died, he had ridden over 250,000 miles on horseback throughout England preaching the gospel so that when he died in 1791 at the very time the poor were resentfully rioting and murdering in France they were following Christ in England and what moved what what is it that moved John Wesley to ride over a quarter of a million miles throughout England to preach the gospel because of something that happened to him decades before. On May the 24th, 1738. Let me, here's how he told the story. Just listen. I think it was about five this morning. He got up real early, y'all. I think it was about five this morning that I opened my testament to those words. And he writes it in Greek. The Greek text of 2 Peter 1.4. He opened his Greek text to these words. And he translates it. Here's how he translates it. There are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, even that ye should be partakers of the divine nature. Just as I went out, I opened it again to these words. Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. In the afternoon, I was asked to go to St. Paul's, St. Paul's Cathedral in London. He went to Evensong, which is five in the evening. The anthem was... Out of the deep I called to thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. O let thine ears consider well the voice of my complaint. If thou, O Lord, wilt be extreme to mark what is done amiss, O Lord, who may abide it. But there is mercy with thee. Therefore thou, thou shalt be feared. O Israel, trust in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all his sins. That was the anthem at St. Paul's that day. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society at Aldersgate Street. Note to self, when you don't feel like coming to church, that's especially the time you should be coming to church. I went very unwillingly to a society at Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me 
that He had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And that's the day He came to saving faith in Christ, John Wesley. So it's the combination of Scripture heard at St. Paul's from the Psalms and the explanation of the Gospel through Martin Luther in his epistle to the, uh, his commentary on the epistle to the Romans that brought him to that place of salvation. That's what spurred him to preach, possibly spared England another revolution. So the Reformation, I say all that to say the Reformation, which in many ways influenced the ideas that, that brought about one kind of revolution in America, very possibly prevented a very different kind of revolution in England. It's hard to overestimate how significant the Protestant Reformation was and still is. So let's begin thinking about it. As it was Luther's preface to the Romans, a commentary on Romans that uh, affected uh, Wesley. Let's, let's start with that letter ourselves. We're going to read Romans 3, 19 through 26. It's going to be our passage both this week and next. We're going to read it today just so we can, I guess, say we've read Scripture. That feels so dirty coming out of my mouth. But we need to know history too. All right. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held, may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, um, as we begin thinking about the Reformation today, would you give us help to, to think clearly about the history of your church? And, uh, Father, I, even as we're giving greater weight to history tonight than we are to um, explicating your word, I pray that you would still bless this time and, and help us through this understanding of history to understand your word better. Because we, we do recognize, Lord, that your, your word is our authority in all things. It, that your word is, is inspired. It, it alone is inspired and inerrant, sufficient and clear and authoritative and necessary. There's not a thing that we believe that if not uh, justified by your word is worth believing. So I pray, Father, that even as we have read this word, let it speak for itself. 
And Father, help us to, to think clearly about this important history so that we might love you more, serve you more, and better. And understand your word better. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, here's how I want us to spend these uh, two weeks to kind of get a, a snapshot of this enormously important event. T- tonight, two things. First, I want to think about some of the reformers. I just want to introduce you to some people. Who were some of the main people that God used to bring about the Reformation? If you know anything about the Reformation, if you've already done some reading and study on the Reformation, you might be like, hey, he left so-and-so out. Yeah, I probably did. I, there's a lot of, lot of people. I got to start, I got to stop somewhere, you know? So we're going to meet some important people. Then as we begin to think about the Reformation itself, the other thing we're going to see tonight We need to see, first and foremost, that it was a recovery of the Scriptures. That's what it was most fundamentally. That without that, none of the rest would have happened. Uh, This is, by the way, there are five, you might have heard of the five solas of the Reformation. This is the first one, sola scriptura. Scripture alone was a mark of the Reformation. Then next week, We're going to finish out this series by seeing how, most significantly, it was a recovery of the gospel. That was the inevitable next step. If you recover the scriptures, you're going to recover the gospel. The Catholic Church had gotten so far away from the scriptures, and so far, therefore, so far away from the biblical gospel, that when the people returned to the scriptures and just could read it for themselves, it it was a matter of time before they said, wait a minute, wait a minute. That just seems so clear in the Scriptures. Why have I never heard that? That was made clear in the next three solas of the Reformation. Sola gratia, solus Christus, or sola fide was next, sola Christus. So by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Finally, they saw, next week we'll think, they saw that in all of this, this, this was a return to God. That through the erosion of biblical authority and through the loss of the clear biblical gospel, they felt like the church had just wandered away from God altogether. So in everything that they did and everything that they taught, their aim was captured in the final sola, soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. So that's, that's plenty to think about. So let's think about the reformers, some of these reformers. Certainly we can't talk about everybody. And we can't and won't give a... a, a, a Biography of each, but we need to at least be aware of some. So let's, let's get our bearings. All right. We've already talked about some of these guys in the past two weeks on the, on the history of the church. Some we'll re- recap, but I'll introduce you to some others that we haven't yet talked about. Um, and whenever you talk about the Reformers, you, you inevitably need to, it would be unjust not to, Think about some guys who came before these reformers, some guys who were precursors, some guys who sort of paved the way, okay? And uh, guys who set the stage for the Reformation in some important ways. And the first of those guys whom we mentioned already is John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe. He lived in England during the 14th century. Specifically, he was born circa 1330, And he died on December 31st, 1384. Born around 1330, died specifically on December 31st, 1384. Not exactly sure when he was born. 
You know exactly when he died to the day? Why? Because they put him to death. And they kept good records of that kind of thing. He was a professor of divinity at Oxford. And he was burned at the stake. Why? Because he had begun to translate the Bible into English. And through that had become to believe the true gospel and was beginning to talk about it. He was burned at the stake and he became known as the morning star of the Reformation. Someone we haven't mentioned yet, a guy named John Huss. If you want to be particular, Jan Hus, who lived from circa... 1369 to the 6th of July, 1415. Not exactly sure when he was born. We know to the day, the day he died. Why? Because they put him to death. And they kept good records of that kind of thing. He was a professor and a preacher in Prague in modern day Czech Republic. And he was burned at the stake because he too came to believe the true gospel through his study at, of the scripture. See, he had, uh, he had been influenced by Wycliffe to go to the scriptures. Don't just listen to the pronouncements of the popes. Check them against the scriptures. Go to the scriptures and see if these things are so. And he came to believe like Luther did a few years later. He, he, he disagreed with the sale of indulgences. Do you remember what the sale of indulgences were? The sale of indulgences were, were uh, at least in Luther's day, I'll, I'll, tell, you one. I'll tell you what it was in, in Huss's day. Indulgences were basically a collection of money. You can pay money. You pay a certain amount of money to the Catholic Church, and they will assure you that one of your loved ones who had already died could be freed from purgatory and go to heaven. So pay this money and your aunt will go to heaven and will no longer suffer in purgatory. In Luther's day, they were raising money for the building of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. That's what they were raising the money for. Well, John Huss uh, disagreed with that. He said, you can't find that in Scripture. And he began to defy the very pronouncements of the Pope. Martin Luther, he was a fiery preacher. Martin Luther would later say, after reading Huss's sermons, he said, I was overwhelmed with astonishment. I could not understand for what cause they had burnt so great a man who explained the scriptures with so much gravity and skill. When Huss was sentenced to death, he said, Lord Jesus, it is for thee that I patiently endure this cruel death. I pray thee to have mercy on my enemies. And witnesses say that as he was burning to death, he was reciting the Psalms. He was a very influential figure uh, leading up to the Reformation. The, the last early-ish, early-ish, I'll say early-ish because he roughly was the same time period as, as Luther. Early-ish, though, people I'll mention was brought up um, a couple of weeks ago, a brilliant linguist named William Tyndale, who lived from Circa, 1494, died on the 6th of October, 1536. 
Not exactly sure when he was born. We know exactly when he died. You know the drill. Because they put him to death. And they kept good records of that kind of thing. He studied at both Oxford and Cambridge. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. He was the first to translate the Bible into English directly from the Hebrew and the Greek. He was burned at the stake for that. But not before something significant happened. You see, by this time that Tyndale was on the scene doing his thing, uh, the printing press had been invented. And things were going viral. It was the original going viral. When Tyndale was dying, his New Testaments were everywhere. They were everywhere. It's a documented fact that his New Testaments were being sold in a section of London called Cheapside. Cheapside is, is funny now because Cheapside is in a very posh section of central London, city of London. It's like Wall Street all around it. It's called Cheapside. And you look around and the streets are called Milk Street, Bread Street. Honey Street. Why? That used to be the market. That's where they would go buy their milk and their bread and their honey and their grain. That was the, that was the, the ordinary person's market. And it was, it's a documented fact that Tyndale's New Testament was being sold on Honey Street. Honey Street. Honey Lane, rather. And I love this idea. By the way, this is Cheapside and, and Honey Lane is less than one mile from St. Paul's Cathedral. Okay? And next to St. Paul's Cathedral is a little monument years ago before the fire of London. There was a, an enormous cross called St. Paul's Cross. And that's where they would stand on that platform foot of the cross and make public announcements and things like that. It's also the place when they had heretics, they would burn their books, burn their writings. I love the fact that at St. Paul's Cross, at St. Paul's Cathedral, while they thought they were burning his writings, his New Testament was being sold less than a mile away in the market. That's awesome. Well, the Reformation seemed inevitable at this point because people just had the Bible in their hands. And it, it kicked off in full bloom, though. You know who I'm about to talk about. When in 1517, Martin Luther, a German Augustinian monk, nailed 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg. It was really... He wasn't intending to really start anything. He was a professor at a Roman Catholic university. He was teaching different classes. One of the classes he was teaching was teaching on the, Paul's letter to the Romans. It was the first time he'd ever read Romans. He was assigned to teach on Romans. He had never read it, even as a monk. 
Um, so he was an ac- academic guy. When he nailed the 95 Theses of the Door, he wasn't trying to start anything. That's where, it was like the bulletin board. The church door was like the town bulletin board. So he was just essentially trying to uh, call for a debate among his, his academic peers. Um, and it was 95 different points of debate. He was starting to read the Bible and seeing different things that this doesn't line up with what we've been taught. So, I mean, the first one is like when our Lord and Master said repent, he meant that the believer's whole life should be one of repentance. That's what he was seeing in the Bible. That doesn't line up with what we've been taught. Well, he was just trying to call a debate. Well, somebody came and got the 95 theses off the church house door in Wittenberg, and the printing press had been invented. It went viral. Because of Luther, having to fast forward, things were happening in in Germany. Things were happening in Germany. But in Switzerland, things were also happening because of two different men. One, John Calvin, who along with Luther would be the most significant and influential reformer ever. Luther and Calvin, hands down. The other is is Ulrich Zwingli. And I'll just throw one more in there. In Britain and especially in Scotland, you had John Knox. Fiery preacher. We don't have time in complete depth to talk about each one of these men. I've told you a little bit about some of them. When we come next week and we talk about the recovery of the gospel, and, and yeah, especially on that point, we will talk a lot more about Luther and Calvin, which can't cover them all this, this week. But one thing all of these guys have in common with each other, because there is a commonality among all of them, is that, that every single one of them was committed to the recovery of the Scriptures in some way. We've already seen that the, the early men who influenced this Reformation, Wycliffe and Huss and Tyndale, were all deeply committed to the Scriptures. I mean, they literally died for it in painful ways. They were burned to death. I mean, you'll really find out if you really believe something, if you're willing to be burned to death for it. Huss was shown he was deeply committed to the recovery of the Scriptures by his preaching. He preached and he preached. Remember Luther talked about his, his preaching. And Wycliffe and, and Tyndale in their translation of the Scriptures into the common language of the, of, the, of the people. Tyndale was famous for saying to the priests, he said, through his translation of the Bible into their everyday language, he said, I will, I will make the plowboy know more of the Bible than you. You know, if they could just read it for themselves. So it's up to the time of the Reformation, the Bible was only in Latin. And there was only one copy of it in town in the parish church. And it was chained to the pulpit. Probably because it was very gilded and gold and it was expensive and someone might steal it. But the translation of the Scriptures didn't stop with Tyndale and and Wycliffe. One of Martin Luther's great achievements is translating the Bible into ordinary German. 
In fact, his, his translation of the Bible into German was, so, was really like foundational on the German language of today, much like Shakespeare and the King James Bible is for English for us. He, and, he, and, and people could read it for themselves. And in Geneva, Switzerland, John Calvin helped produce a, um, an incredibly influential Bible called the Geneva Bible. He didn't do much of the translation of it, but he did add uh, notes in the margins, like explanatory notes for the ordinary reader to be able to understand what they were reading. That's awesome. It reminds me of, of, the, of Ezra and Nehemiah. Remember when they built the platform and, and they stood reading the law and people were going around helping them understand what they were hearing? That's what we have in written form in the Geneva Bible. And you got like John Calvin, come along. Here's what it means. And not only were they committed to translate it so that people could read it, but they were committed to preaching it incessantly. It's hard to believe how thirsty they were for the word and how ignorant they were of it. We, we take it for granted. We, I, we don't have any idea what that was like for them. Probably no better example of that is with John Calvin. Like I said, he was in Geneva, Switzerland. Which at that time, he came for the first time in 1536. It was a terrible place. It was a terrible place. It was known for his godly, godlessness and immorality and just bawdiness and people running around naked throughout town. I mean, it was terrible. It's terrible. But Calvin came and he began to preach. And what did he, he began to preach just like, like you have here. He just preached through books of the Bible. Verse by verse by verse by verse by verse. And it quickly cut against the grain of the culture of the town, so they ran him out of town and banished him from town. Later, through events we don't have time to explain, they invited him back. We're sorry. One writer said, so committed was Calvin to consecutive exposition, like verse, verse by verse by verse, that when he returned to Geneva on September 13, 1541, after being banished for almost four years, he resumed his exposition at precisely the next verse. That was awesome. Why? Because they knew, the reformers knew that God would do His work through His Word. That the Holy, because the reformers knew that they couldn't do anything. If the Holy Spirit didn't do it, it wouldn't be done. And the Holy Spirit speaks through His Word. And they knew that the Holy Spirit was the one who created the church. And the the church was built on the Word of God, which is a very controversial statement in the days of the Reformation. For Him to say that the Holy Spirit, speaking through the Word, created the church would have been anathema to the Roman Catholic Church of that day. Because their view was the church created the Bible. Therefore, they stood in authority over the Bible. It's not true. So because of these things that the Reformers came to believe about the Bible, because of what they read in the Bible, they read Jesus' view of the Scriptures. They saw how Jesus Himself treated the Scriptures. 
For Jesus, that sola scriptura doesn't mean Scripture is all that we read, but it means Scripture is our highest authority. And they saw that that was what was true for Jesus himself. How many arguments did Jesus get in his earthly ministry where he says, Have you not read? Have you not read this? He expected them to have read it. And if you've read it, there you go. Paul's view, all Scripture is breathed out by God. In other words, profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. Correction implies authority. So Calvin preached, and he preached, and he preached, and he preached a lot. The same writer said, the sheer volume of Calvin's preaching is staggering. Upon his return to Geneva in 1541, Calvin preached twice on Sunday, then on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. In 1542, he was asked to preach more often. Exclamation, exclamation. Y'all. If I preach twice on Sunday and Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, y'all wouldn't be asking me a little more, please. But he accepted. In October 1549, he increased his preaching duties to twice on Sunday and every weekday, every other week. Calvin brought 10 new sermons every 14 days. An impressive number considering his vast commitments. Because he wasn't just a preacher, he was a pastor of real people who got sick and died. Let me just give you a flavor of his preaching. Because preaching that much, you might think that might have been skimpy sermons. They weren't. Here's the end. I'm just going to read one paragraph. Here's the end of his sermon on Micah, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5a. Didn't even get through two whole verses. Here's the, last, here's the end of his sermon. In accordance, then, with this holy doctrine, let us prostrate ourselves before our gracious God in acknowledgement of our faults. Let us pray that it may please Him to open our eyes so truly that we might comprehend the depth of our sins along with the malice and iniquity that are part of our nature. That as a result, we might learn fully to trust Him May it please God also to fortify us so effectively and to so change our lives by the Holy Spirit that instead of continuing to flaunt our proud and presumptuous nature, we might come in complete humility to do homage to His majesty. May we become so reformed by His grace that by our good life and example, others too might find their path to the road of salvation in order that by magnifying His name in this world, all of us together might be able to attain to His kingdom to which He calls us. Every day. Every day He was preaching like that. The focus on the Scriptures above the pronouncement of popes or anybody else during the Reformation this commitment to the Scriptures, this recovery of the Scriptures, it changed the very architecture of the buildings. 
don't know if you ever thought about that. Why does this building look the way it does? When you, when you walk into the sanctuary, why does it look the way it looks? When you walk in this room, why am I standing right here and you're sitting right there? You know? Have you ever been in, uh, into a Roman Catholic church? Have you ever noticed what it looks like? So when you walk into a Roman Catholic church building, you walk in, what, what, is, what is front and center on the, on the front platform? What, it, what is right there? Do you know? It's the communion table. Right? It's where they, it's where they, it's, yeah, it's where the mass happens. It's where they break the bread and drink the wine and it's a warped view of the supper. Where's the pulpit? Way off over here to the side. Up high. You know? Because the, the word was not front and center of the, of the meeting. It was a side thing. What was front and center was be here for this sacrament because by being here, you're earning your way. The reformer said, well, no, 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 let's put it right in the middle. Not because of the preacher. This is what we build the church on. And not just the shape of the building. Their commitment to the word shaped the worship that happened in it. They believed and taught what is called the regulative principle. Regulative principle. That simply means that how do we know what to do in worship? We only do in worship what God tells us to do in worship. We only do what Scripture tells us to do. Why would they say that? Because of the second commandment and places where in Scripture God does exactly that. But they also knew this, that if we invent our own ways of worship, we will begin worshiping a God of our own imaginations. They knew that not only do we worship God, but we worship Him as He has told us to come. And they knew that to go away from this... All is lost. So the foundation of the Reformation was the recovery of scriptures. Men died and gladly died to produce the scriptures in the languages of people that they could read. And they spent their lives teaching it and preaching it. Because in it, which we'll talk about next week, was the gospel. And that's what they covered, recovered next, which had been lost for so long. Let's pray.